So kids, kids copy everything. Am I right? I say that knowing there are kids in here today, and y'all do it. Don't act like you don't. And if you aren't aware that you're doing it, believe me, one day you will know. You will understand. You know, I think for me that's probably one of the, the biggest challenges or maybe changes and I know it's, this is not true of just for me. I'm sure lots of mamas and daddies have felt that when they had their first child or brought their first, first child home is recognizing, oh, no, what comes out of my mouth will come out of theirs, and what I do, they will in turn soon, soon do. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just cute, and if you think that I'm going to give you one of those kind of embarrassing Jackson copied daddy moments this morning, well, sorry, you'll have to come back and, and try again later. You know, I've mentioned before that I run, uh, and remember, I don't run because running's fun. I'm, I run because eating's fun, and so therefore I run. Um, and so on my running days, uh, the days where I'm not running with Jackson, I have one day a week where I actually take him along with me, and I'm pushing a stroller, and it's miserable, and if you ever have to run with a child, don't. It's horrible. Um, but on the days when he's not with me, I'm, I'm usually leaving before he gets out of bed. But then by the time I get back, he is usually already up and, and out of the bed. So he, he knows what daddy looks like when I'm in my, my running apparel. He has seen me. He's seen my antics, my stretching um, to get ready to go run. Uh, he's, he's seen it all. And so it only took him a few times of seeing me in my running getup to begin wanting to be like daddy and go run. And of course, if he's going to be like daddy and go run, I mean, he's not just going to like jog around the couch in the living room, right? I mean, he's got to go through all the, all the, all the stuff and do it to do it just right. So one day, I think it's Lacey and I were standing in the kitchen and Jackson comes around the corner and I don't know if he'd gone into a drawer. I don't know if I just left him laying out, but he's got earbuds in his ear there, he's got the string, they're hanging down to the ground, you know, it's dragging on the ground beneath his feet, and he comes up to us and he proudly announces, I run! And we're like, go for it, buddy. But he couldn't just run, so he had to stretch, so he's over here just like, you know, getting his, getting his, his yoga stretches in, like he's, he's taking care of business, he is ready to, he's ready to go. And then sure enough, he takes, takes off. I mean, if y'all have seen him after a service on Sunday mornings, like running around in here like a wild man, you know, his version of taking off, it's like a bobblehead that's on the move, just blah, 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 blah. You know, there he goes, off, off around the couch, his earbuds in his ears, dragging on the ground, not plugged into anything, obviously, but he's running. He knew that that's what daddy does, that's what daddy looks like, that's how daddy goes about it when, when he runs. And so if he wanted to be like me when I run, well, there were just certain things that he had to do. He had to do those things as well. And so in the text that we're in th this morning, we're going to see that in Christ, we have an example to follow when it comes to serving other people, especially Christians. And in his life, and especially in his death, Christ Jesus shows us what humility in service really looks like. And what we have to see is that to be a disciple of Jesus means serving others as he has served us. So with that, let me pray, and we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for time and space to gather in this morning to sing praises to your name and to study your word. Your word is so good. It leads us to you. And because of that, 
May you, through your word and by your spirit this morning, lead us to truth. Open our eyes to where sin is present in our life, and by the power of your spirit, help us put it to death, that in everything we might honor and glorify you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, reading to verse 11, it says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. So there are three things in the text that I think we need to see this morning. And the first is that our unity as a body testifies to our comfort in Christ. So now the, the letter to the Philippians, it, it's partly an update from Paul on how he is faring in prison. They've sent someone to him. They've actually sent a gift to him, and they want a report. They want an update. How is Paul doing in prison? So he's writing back. He's thanking them for that. But primarily what he's doing is writing to encourage a church who is facing their own opposition for their faith. And so with this in mind, he tells them that what he wanted to hear about them was that their lives reflected the gospel, that they were living in a manner that was worthy of the gospel that they had received. And specifically what Paul meant by that was that they were not to be frightened by the people who were opposing them for their faith. Instead, Paul wanted them to remain committed to striving together for the gospel despite the opposition that they were facing. Even because of it, he wanted them to strive together. So when we get to chapter 2 and look at verses 1 to 2, what I think you have is, is Paul's uh, conclusion from his thoughts at the end of chapter 1, specifically verses 27 through 30. So he reminds them in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 1 that their suffering for Christ actually served to confirm their salvation. And so what that means is when Paul begins chapter 2 by saying, if there is, in, in verse 1, which obviously we know Paul wasn't writing with chapters, but when he begins what we have is chapter 2, with if there is, he's not questioning you know, whether or not these things that he's saying are true. He's not asking as if he's uncertain as to whether or not these were actually realities of the Christian life. He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that the answer is absolutely yes. These things are true. But what he wants is for the church to reflect on these realities. He wants them to stop and think about it. And so let's do that. Think about it. Was there any encouragement 
for the church at Philippi. Well, let's consider what Paul has to say at the end of the passage. He says that Jesus has been exalted by God. He's been given the name that is above every name. And every knee will bow before him. So their opponents, yeah, they may make things difficult for a time. They may make their lives miserable. They may take property. They may hinder business for them. They may imprison them. They may kill them. But in the end, their opponents will bow before the Lord. The Philippian believers, they would bow too. But they would be bowing to the very one who had saved them, in whom they could take courage. Christ reigns in glory. And because of this, no matter the circumstance, there is encouragement for believers, not just the church at Philippi, but for us too. There is encouragement for believers in all times and in all places. Encouragement to stand firm in the faith, no matter what the cost may be. Well, then Paul says, is there any comfort from love for the Christian? Well, Jesus says in John 15, verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And as we see in verse 8, Jesus sure enough did lay down his life. And as we see in Hebrews 10, 14, this was so that those who believe, those who trust, those who follow him, those who would be his disciples, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. God's love for believers did not then, and it does not now depend on our circumstances. God's love for the believer is secured in the cross of Christ through his sacrifice for our sins. So could the Philippians have comfort from love? Yeah, absolutely. And so should we who are in Christ. And as it should have been strengthening their faith, so it should be strengthening ours. Well, Paul also says to them, your participants in the Holy Spirit, there's questions, are, is there participation in the Holy Spirit who indwelled you? Again, the answer is yes. They were sealed by the Holy Spirit, which gave them the strength that they needed to remain firm in their trials. But even more than that, being sealed by the Spirit ensures that the believer will remain in Christ till the end. This is God's down payment on you. He will have you. He has sealed you by His Spirit. You will persevere because the Spirit that dwells within you, He will hold you fast. And throughout the believer's life, this, this faith, it grows through knowledge of God's affection for us and His sympathy towards us. See, we know that God feels affection for believers, and this is clear in the fact that He calls us His children. We're not just casual acquaintances of the Almighty. No, in and through Christ, believers receive the status of sons. We're told in Ephesians 1 that He has adopted us as His children. He's made us His own. And in Christ, 
we know that we have a mediator who sympathizes with us in all of our weaknesses. Having suffered as a man, he knows the temptations that you and I and the church at Philippi and believers across all time and all places, he knows what we endure. But he endured them without sin. And so he therefore has the right to be our mediator, even as he sympathizes with us. And so the result of these realities by faith in Christ should then cause the believer's affections for Christ to be growing. And I think that's part of what Paul is, is doing here. He is calling the church to reflect on these things and being reminded that it was true for them, have their love for Christ stirred and increased. But Paul's primary goal, it seems, was to get the church to see what should happen within the body of Christ as a result of the contentment and the security that was theirs in Christ. Paul makes it, it clear in, in verse 2 that the comfort that believers have in Christ, that has to result in unity. The feelings of encouragement or our, our feelings of comfort that are ours in Christ, well, that's not just meant to be experienced on a personal level. They are experienced within the context of the local church whose members share in these realities. Christ died for the church. And so this means that as our affections for, for God increase, they should, they have to be increasing for other believers. In fact, our affections for God cannot increase without growing affection for one another. I think John makes this clear in 1 John 4, where he ties so intimately the love that we have for God with the love that we have for other believers, and the love that we have for other believers with the love that we have for God. He says clearly, if you do not love your brother whom you have seen, then you cannot love God whom you have not seen. Being a disciple of Jesus means loving all of the members. That word's pretty covers pretty much everything, right? All the members of his body that he purchased with his blood. Paul shows in verses 1 and 2 that our comfort and encouragement in Christ is an essential building block to church unity. You don't have it without that comfort and encouragement. That being true, it says something about the comfort and the encouragement that we are finding in Christ if we find ourselves constantly caught up in disunity and if that's rampant within our church. If I'm striving against those that I should be striving with, if I'm striving against those that God has declared holy and blameless in Christ, if, if I'm striving against those whom Christ Jesus has purchased with his own blood, if I'm striving against those whom God has satisfied his wrath against by pouring it out on Christ, if I'm striving against them, then it seems that my comfort comes from everyone acting and thinking according to my own ideals and my own preferences. True commitment 
is only found in Jesus Christ. Only he could do what was necessary for us to have that. So when we look to people in our church for that, if we require of people that they must always be on the same page as me in secondary and third tier matters, then it's going to end poorly, always. The church is incredibly diverse. Different ethnicities, socioeconomic status, different theological positions, varying levels of education, people of all ages. Some of us cheer for teams that go to the Final Four and have their hearts broken, and some of us enjoy watching that happen. If we all put our effort in, if we all put our effort into establishing unity on any of those grounds, what would happen? We would splinter into a billion pieces because we would inevitably lose common ground. Our best efforts to manufacture unity are always going to come up short. Our, our sin ensures this. But in Christ, we have common ground that transcends everything else. He is the one who brings the body together because of what he has accomplished on our behalf. Nothing surpasses that. He is the one who has said, I am building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But still, there are very real differences that exist between us. So, how, how do we, as one people in Christ, overcome the fleshy urges that exist within us to lean into those differences, to make a great deal about those differences? Well, we make the interests of our church family our own interests. And so that leads to the second thing that I think that we need to see in the text, which is that the humility in our body testifies to our comfort in Christ. So in verse 2, we see that Paul's joy was inseparably linked to the Philippians standing firm together in the gospel. In verses 3 and 4, he then tells them exactly what that should look like. If they were united by shared comfort from Christ and increasing affections for him, well, this would be made evident from their serving one another and doing so with the right motivations. What he is saying here is clear. If there is going to be unity in the church, then you cannot have self-serving motivations that are driving the actions of the members of the church. Instead, as my affections are increasing for him, my affections for other believers will increase as well. Because of the comfort that I have in Christ and the comfort that I know that is theirs in Christ, I'm going to want to do what I, what I can to remind them of what they have in him. So like Paul commands in verse 3, instead of doing things for my own glory, so that other people see me and I make a name for myself, everything I do will be about helping others increase their affections for Jesus. I'm going to put to death any thought that it's all about me and about what I can get from other people. Instead, I'm going to put 
people above myself, put others above myself. Serving them because Christ Jesus loves them. He wants their good. And because he does, so do I. But, but this idea of counting others as more significant than yourselves, well, that totally flies in the face of the culture in which we live, right? In our culture, if you start thinking with an others first attitude of how can I put others' needs and their interests before me, before my own, well, then culture says, no, oh, no, don't do that. You're going to get walked all over. You're going to get trampled on. So what do we do? Well, we make sure that we have the last word in conversations, making sure that, that we don't let anyone else show us up. And we make sure that it's our idea or our ideas that are getting pushed as the best way forward, as the way that everyone else should be thinking and the way that everyone else should be approaching a certain situation. We don't listen to other people, and we don't listen to their ideas. Instead of listening, what we do is we rack our brains trying to come up with the next rebuttal to their point so that we can continue to push our idea as the best way forward, as the only way forward, as what everyone else needs to be thinking about doing. But when we do this, we're ensuring that we won't know how to care for one another. We won't know what each other needs, and we certainly won't know how to pray for one another. We're not listening to one another. And where this happens, unity can't flourish. But, but failing to look to others' interests, well, that impacts my relationships beyond the walls of the church too, right? It happens in your marriage. Every time your spouse says something that you don't agree with, but instead of listening, you just take over the conversation and only focus on proving that you are right and they are wrong. It happens in your friendships when you dominate conversations with everything that is going on in their life and never stop to ask what is going on in theirs. It happens when you constantly put yourself down so that other people will say nice things about you. It happens when you casually bring up your compliments, your accomplishments, to fish for compliments, trying to get people to tell you that you're doing a good job, but then you act like, oh no, it's no big deal. So that's all the Lord. It's all the Lord's doing. Praise the Lord for that. That's not humility. That's pride. If your biggest concerns are your interests and your praise, then you will not help unity increase anywhere. Even when you do go to serve other people, if you're only willing to serve when it serves your own interests, then you're failing to contribute to unity within your relationships and in the body of Christ. If I only serve when it benefits me, then the only conclusion that can be drawn is that doing something for somebody is no longer about Jesus' kindness towards them, but it's about my kindness towards them. You're the one that's meeting their needs. You're the good guy that they can depend on. And they should exalt our name for it, right? The glory goes to us. Paul shows us here that the price for unity in our churches and in all areas of our life, is willingness to stop pushing our own interests to the top of the pile and highly value the needs and the interests of others. It, it isn't just trying to help out other people. It's about not chasing praise for ourselves. The motivations that allow unity to flourish and grow 
are motivations that elevate the good of those that we are serving out of love for them that is born out of our love for Jesus. Unity is cultivated when our goal in service to others is that the result is praise for Jesus. It is His love that is being put on display for anyone to see and His love that allows unity to be cultivated. That's because the only kind of unity that is sustainable is the kind that's rooted in His unending glory. And that leads to the third thing that I think we need to see in the text this morning, which is that a disciple of Jesus follows His example of humility. So looking at verse 5, Paul makes it clear to the Philippians the type of humble service fitting for the kingdom of heaven, that that could only come through being found in Christ. So he says, look to Jesus and the example that he has given us of what humble service really is. See, verse 6 reminds us that Christ Jesus has existed from eternity past. Not only with God, but as God, God the Son. He shares in the same essence, power, and glory as both God the Father and God the Spirit. We read in John 1.1 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John then tells us in verse 14 of chapter 1 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Despite the fact that He is God, that He is equal in majesty with the Father, always has been, always will be. He did not hold tight to that, though it was his divine right to do so. Instead, we see in verse 7 that he emptied himself. And so to be clear, this doesn't mean that he laid aside any of his divinity. You know like when you go to the pool and there's like that locker kind of set up, or if you go to like Six Flags and you got lockers, you can put your stuff in. It's not like Jesus on his way, stepping out of heaven, was like, all right, let me take you know, this parts of my being God, let me just take it off and stick it in this locker so that the angels, y'all can watch over it till I get back. No, no, that didn't happen. If we take the position that Jesus laid any, aside any of his divinity, uh, we have a word for that, it's called heresy, and so don't do that. He was and is fully God. But in the incarnation, he assumed the, the likeness of man, becoming fully man. The emptying of himself is as much about what he took on in becoming fully man, assuming all of the realities of humanity, including hunger, thirst, exhaustion, pain, temptation, sadness, sorrow. In taking on the likeness of man, what he's doing, he has masked his divinity. He's been robed in frail humanity. The king of the universe was born as a frail, vulnerable baby who would grow up to suffer and die for the sake of people who had betrayed him and even some who stood there in the very act of killing him. The immortal one was willing to subject himself to mortality and death. But his humbling didn't stop with just taking on the frailty of man. He was obedient to the will of the Father, even unto death. But it, even then, it still goes further than just the fact that he died, as if that wasn't enough. The death that he died was incredibly humiliating. 
He was stripped of his clothes and beaten. He was forced to carry the instrument of his own death until he couldn't carry it any longer and collapsing under the weight of it had someone else have to come along and carry it for him to the place where he was then nailed to it. He was made fun of. He was taunted. And he was laughed at while he died. Even the people, the two men, dying next to him were mocking him. And even then, it wasn't just that that was part of his humiliation. The very source of his death, crucifixion in and of itself, was humiliating. We read in Deuteronomy 21-23 that anyone who dies on a tree is cursed by God. Paul applies this to Jesus in Galatians 3.13 where he says, He became a curse for us. He bore our curse. He was our curse on our behalf. Jesus willingly chose humiliation in order to save sinful man and did so in humble submission to God the Father. Think about it. Jesus who could claim equality with God because He is God instead willingly chose to be humiliated for the sake of the very people whose actions, whose sins, our sins were the cause, they were what necessitated his humiliation. And so just stopping there, if you find yourself in a place where you're discouraged, you feel all alone, you feel like there is no love to be had for you, come back to this text. Look at the love that God has for you in Christ. Be of strong courage. Be comforted. The love that he has for you. The love that was put on display for you in the cross. It's a great love. He can't be taken from us. So be encouraged and stand firm. and Continue to persevere for the faith. Beyond, but beyond just encouragement for us, what we have to see from this and what Paul is telling the Philippians, this is what you got to do. This is where you need to take this. Is that when we serve other people because of our selfish motivations, when we want praise and admiration because of the things that we done, we have done, or when we do things so that we get things in return from people, not only are we hindering unity, but we are rejecting the pattern that was set by Jesus. If God the Son chose humiliation instead of exaltation, then we have no right to seek exaltation ourselves. He actually had a right to claim it. We don't. But it's not just about our motivations when we decide to serve or do things for others. Our motivations for choosing not to serve are as important as our motivations for when we serve. The pattern that is set by Christ also condemns us acting like some areas of service are beneath us. In the church, there is no room for us to feel too important to serve in certain areas or that our talent and our abilities mean that we do not need to bother ourselves with an area of service that doesn't challenge us. Maybe you're able to teach. Maybe you're very gifted at teaching. That does not mean you're above changing a light bulb. 
We also never reach the point where we've served enough that it's time for us to sit back and relax while someone else picks up the slack. I get it. It's real easy to come to a place where you have been serving for a long period of time and you see others who aren't. And you're serving maybe in multiple places. And it's real easy to come to a point there where you say, you know what? If they're not going to pick up their slack, why should I? And just I say, I'm done with it. But the pattern that's been set for us in Christ's crucifixion says no. There's no room for that sort of attitude for those that are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And this extends beyond the walls of the church as well. There's no chore at home that we won't take care of, that we are unwilling to do in service to our family. Parents, we will play the games that our children enjoy, even if we don't enjoy them, even if they bring us to the, the point of boredom that we're in tears. We'll do that for them because it makes them happy. There's no task at work that your boss can give you where you would just scoff at it and only apply minimal effort or, or push it off on someone else who's in a position lower than you because... That's grunt work. I don't need to do that. Christ willingly allowed himself to be humiliated. He stepped away from the highest glory to face the greatest shame. So patterning our lives after his means not trying to exalt ourselves by an inflated sense of self-importance. Jesus gave up the right that he had every claim to. To be his disciples then requires that we not act like we have rights that we actually have no claim on. But what happened after Jesus' humiliation? His exaltation. After his resurrection, we read in Matthew 28 that he now has all authority in heaven and on earth. Again, I said earlier, all is pretty all-encompassing. You have it again there. All authority in heaven and on earth. 1 Corinthians 15.27 tells us that all things have, put in, have been put in subjection under his feet. His humiliation was the path to his exaltation as God's king who rules over everything that is and who will ultimately judge the world for its sin. It is at his feet that everyone will bow. That includes me and you. It is his power and authority that will be recognized and is even now being recognized as his kingdom continues to spread throughout the world. As Pastor Michael said last week, second by second, it is spreading. Jesus' humbling of himself is the only way that we would ever be able to take part in his kingdom having been redeemed from our sins through his being obedient, even to the point of death on a cross. Because he has done this, the only right response is that I serve with the same sort of self-sacrificing love that he has shown to me. It is his sacrifice that establishes the church and the unity that can and should exist within every church body. And because of our love for him, we should want to see this increase. We should want to see this grow. We should want to see this flourish. This text shows us that every one of us has the opportunity to play a role in that. 
by simply being humble and seeking to serve the people around us because of the love that we have for them in Christ. But how do we, how do, we do that? I'm sure there are lots of ways. But I want us to consider how we use our time. You know, it, it seems like the mantra of our day when it comes to caring for people, um, the, the mantra, the sentiment that we always hear is thoughts and prayers. And that's not to knock prayer, right? Don't throw me out like yet. This prayer is the first and the easiest thing that we can do, right? Prayer is a way that we do serve our brothers and sisters in the faith by praying for them. Sometimes praying is the only thing you can do. Depending on the situation, that, that may legitimately be all you can do is pray. Maybe because of physical limitations, all you can do is pray. That is, that is what you can do. And prayer is not like some secondary form of service. Prayer is essential in our serving to others. So don't, don't, don't mistake what I'm saying here. What, what, I, what I'm trying to get at is that unfortunately, prayer so often gets used as an excuse to not have to do anything. That's the issue that people have with the thoughts and prayers sentiment, right? That it's really just a cop-out because I don't actually want to do anything to help the situation. Or maybe I, I would, maybe I would actually like to help, but I'm not actually going to give the time to think about how I could help. Jesus was willing to suffer humiliation in order to atone for our sins. So to be his disciple requires responding to the needs of others with a whole lot of humility. And so... Our time. That is one way that we can do that. And, and think about it. This is why. Time is one of the most valuable commodities in our day. How do we know that? Because we rarely have any to give to anyone else. Our schedules are so full. We have all of our own stuff to do, all of our own stuff to take care of, all of our own needs to be met, so we don't actually have time left in the, in the schedule to meet the needs of others. So what do we give them? Thoughts and prayers. But then our schedule's so full, we don't even pray. We forget. But what does it say to someone when we actually do make time for them? serving them in, in whatever it is that they're dealing with. It says, I care about you. I, I, I want good things for you. And so maybe it's as simple as just making the time to listen to someone who's dealing with this, a difficult situation. And you know what? Maybe in your estimation, it's not that big of a deal. Maybe you've gone through enough life experience where you know, all right, I hear you. But believe me, there, were, there are worse things to come. Maybe so. But that shouldn't matter to you. You don't just dismiss them because it's not a big deal to you. You give them your time because it's a big deal to them. Take them to lunch. Put down your cell phone and listen to what is going on in their life. And I want to say this about, about cell phones. How much time would we actually have to give to people if we stopped being so absorbed in the little devices in our hands? Men, let me speak to you as one who does this way more than I care to admit. I get it. You come in from work. Your brain's exhausted. You just want to sit and veg 
and just stare in that little screen and scroll through and see what's happening, what's going on in the world, whether that's a news app or social media site, whatever it is. But that's not serving your family. Serving your family is coming in, putting the device in the bedroom, and going and spending time talking with your wife and actually listening to what she has to say. It's going into your kid's room or playroom or living room, wherever the toys are, if it's like my house, probably everywhere, and just playing, engaged with them, focused on them, and not seeking to serve your own interest and veg out because you're tired. That's true, not just for us dads. We should lead in that. But that's also true husbands and wives, mommies and daddies. Put the phone down. Play with your kid. Spend time with them. But that's also true for college students. That's true for young professionals or old professionals or middle professionals. Wherever you are in the workplace. We get so absorbed in wanting to you know, fill our minds with everything that we can find on that little device. But what if we just stopped for a second, stopped trying to connect with the virtual world and connected with the real world? If you want to reach your campus, go be on your campus, not on Twitter or Instagram or whatever y'all are on these days. It's too fast and I'm too old. And the same goes for our workplaces. If you want to connect with your coworkers, when you need a break, get off your phone and go talk with a coworker, build relationship. Tangent, no. You know what? Going back to the idea of just spending time with people, giving them our time, what about those situations where that, that something, you know, is going to take up a little bit more time, something that's going on in the life of someone you know is going to take up a little bit more time than just one lunch or one coffee meeting? And if you get out of your phones, then I think you'll find that there are people going through stuff that takes a little bit more time to deal with than just one 30-minute conversation. If we're concerned with the interest of others, especially those within the church, that's going to mean stepping into situations that are hard and messy. That might be a couple whose marriage is on the rocks. You serve them by giving up your own family time. Maybe you move your family time to their house where your kids play with their kids while you watch all the kids or they bring their kids to your house, whatever, so that they can go to counseling, or they can go to dinner and just talk about what is going on in their marriage. And maybe, here's an idea, we pay for that meal. It could mean meeting with the couple and having frank, hard conversations, shining light on sin that is trying to be hidden. It might mean weeks or even months of late-night phone calls, lunches, coffees, dinners, more babysitting, doing whatever it is that you can do to help a couple who is fighting to save their marriage. You know, other difficult and messy situations might be someone caught up in habitual sin or a family with a wayward child, but humble service will sometimes involve getting into the nitty-gritty of difficult, hard circumstances. You have to understand, if you are a member of this church, when you joined, you asked the church to care about your business, and you said to the rest of the church, I'm going to care about yours. And that's not so that you can then go gossip about people or so that they can turn around and gossip about you. That's because of how much we're supposed to care about one another, how much we are supposed to want to see each other growing in maturity and faith in Jesus. Paul commands in Galatians 6 to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
we have to be ready and willing to step into the mess, pointing our brothers and our sisters in the faith to Christ in the midst of their mess. We cannot allow our schedules to crowd out members of our faith family when they so desperately need us. We are only free to stop concerning ourselves with their mess when Jesus himself stops being concerned about it. When a local church is is filled with people approaching their relationships with one another in this way, where you and all that is going on in your life is important to me, it totally changes the dynamic of that church. It's not going to eliminate disunity. It's not going to eliminate fights. We're humans. We have sin, and we will yet sin against one another. But it becomes difficult to grumble and complain about someone else when your first thought is how, about how you can maybe meet a need that's in their life, or your first thought is about a time where they met a need in yours. Backbiting and grudges begin to fade to the background, and loving, humble service rises to the top. And what kind of picture does this paint for the community that the church exists in? What kind of message would this send to North River? It says that when Jesus is Lord, when we say that, when we say that Jesus is Lord, we mean it and fight great comfort under his rule and reign. If you're here and you're not presently a follower of Jesus, what I hope for you is that you will consider what has been said about his rule and reign from this text, what this text says about his rule and reign. And I hope you'll consider the comfort and the unity that is available to those who are living in submission to him. We all crave belonging. We all want connection with other people. It's like we were created for it. That happens when people are united. It's like God planned that. Shocker, he did. But the unity that the world around us offers, what the world offers us is it's elusive because it changes from moment to moment. You know, one minute you may share an opinion or certain feelings that places you inside the majority. But what a few minutes and a new hot-button issue can do is that if your opinion is now just a little bit different from those who are inside that majority, well, now you're on the wrong side of history and you're on the outs. But those who follow Jesus, submitting to his rule and reign, are united in a way that the secular world cannot be. That's because our unity is lasting. It is sustained because his rule and reign never ends. As long as he is Lord, we have something to unite around. That's what happens when Jesus' disciples follow his example of humility. If we want to love people the way that he does, then we are going to have to imitate his example. We have to look at him see what he does, see what he did, and do it. In fact, if we want to be his disciple, if you want to be his disciple, then this is the way that you will have to live your life. This isn't optional. It's just what disciples of Jesus do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy to us in Christ. The one who, though he was 
equal with you and is equal with you, who shares in all of your glory, stepped out of heaven to be shamed on our behalf and in our place. Oh God, you're so good to us. Lord, we're so quick to take your goodness to us and to not consider that you've been good, you've forgiven, you've redeemed those around us, to turn on one another, to seek our, seek our own interests above theirs, to be motivated by desires for our own glory and praise instead of your own. Father, forgive us for this and strengthen us by your Spirit that you, O oh God, would be praised in all of our interactions and in the way that we love and serve one another. Be honored in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.